Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. As I wind my way towards my fourth anniversary of making Classical Ideas and having these conversations, it is so fun to think how past guests make their ways back to fall into another conversation with me. Some of my multi-appearing guests, such as Mato Moroshi, Daniel Dulski, Roger Lipsy, Andrea Miller, and Guo Gu, delighted me to no end by coming back on the show for more conversation. In order for new work to appear, time has to pass in one's life so that more life experiences can lead to new things worth saying. And I'm delighted to have another return guest on Classical Ideas. Mark Van Buren is a mindful living trainer, yoga and meditation instructor, personal trainer, and musician that has been promoting health and wellness for years. He runs workshops and retreats around the New York City and New Jersey regions. Mark's first book is A Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness and Your Life is Meditation from Wisdom Publications. We talk about Fool's Guide for Actual Happiness on episode 75, and we talk about Your Life is Meditation on this episode. It was fabulous to have Mark back on the show, and if you want to find him, you can find his work at authormarkvanburen.com. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation and the return of Mark Van Buren. Mark Van Buren, welcome back to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be back here. It's wonderful to have you back, Mark. Uh, You were here for episode 75 when we talked about your first book, A Fool's Guide for Actual Happiness, but that was 27 months ago. I actually counted and I'm curious what you've been up to since we last spoke uh, for, for your last appearance on the show. Sure. I, well, this last year, I haven't been up to too much, <laughs> um, but right. you know, just working a lot, you know, being a father of uh, three kids, ages five, three and one, um, and trying to continue to deepen my practice. I'm actually trying to write a third book. Nice. But, uh, you know. I don't have a lot of time, so it's it's a slow process. Absolutely, <laughs> and just looking really to to get out and, and to start teaching meditation again. It's something I have really missed over this past year because you know we're not doing any in person stuff. The Zoom was you know pretty good at first, but I feel like people are kind of becoming a little less interested, and you know they want to get back to to seeing people again and being close to people again. So I'm kind of in this like Bardo, you know, yeah. this in-between state right now where, uh, you know, I, I feel that deep yearning to get back out and connect and, and get these teachings out there. And, and really that's, you know, what inspired me to reach out to you again is, you know, to, to at least get on some podcasts um, and, and, and teach in some way, because for me teaching, it really actually, obviously it helps other people, but it really helps me strengthen my own practice because when I'm teaching, it's like, well, I better be practicing as as wholeheartedly as I can, what I'm telling other people to, uh, to do. (laughs) So it inspires. For sure, man. Yeah. Have you been doing any music at all? Yeah, actually, uh, I recorded two songs under the band name, Joanne's Basement. Uh, one for, um, a friend of mine who actually passed away last year. And then another one was just like a, a fun remake um, of like a nineties, you know, nineties pop punk. Like we just wanted to bring that music back, you know? <laughs> so we got, 
my friend and I got together and we started reworking some of our old stuff. We wrote these two new ones, which are out. And um, yeah, I mean, music, you know, and then it's just here and there. I, I, I drive trucks for a living. So when I'm waiting uh, at a stop, I uh, have GarageBand on my iPhone and I just write little parts of songs. So music is, is always there. I love it. Well, and it's so funny that you bring up pop punk too, because that's like my my past, you know, my my middle school years were like firmly embedded in like MXPX life in general. And so I've actually been watching tons and tons of live streams from bands for the last few months. Like I'm watching the Bad Religion 40th anniversary uh, month of shows. I've been watching the MXP the MXPX live streams. Um, I saw the Menzingers live stream, uh, a whole bunch of great bands like the Mountain Goats did some great live streams. So I've been, uh, you know, really focusing on putting my 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 energy into watching beautiful things instead of always focusing on uh, the 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 chaos and the maelstrom surrounding us. So I totally hear you, and I'm really glad that you're dabbling still in all of your uh, all of your interests. Like, because you're like one of my polymath friends that come on the show, where you're like, I'm super into yoga, and I'm really into weightlifting, and I'm really into writing, and I'm really into music, and I just love all these things that you're into. So I love hearing what you've been up to. Yes. So how did that first book cycle go for you for a fool's guide for actual happiness? I know that was your first book and that's been out for a long time now. How did that, uh, how did, what's your like reflection looking back on that, that first book cycle? What is that era? Like, what are some big takeaways you had? Um, I mean, you know, for me, the books are, are more of a way for just me to, to expand my reach. And, you know, with Wisdom Publications, it, uh, you know, they're, they're worldwide. I mean, yeah. their podcast goes worldwide. And, you know, I got one of my book, well, A Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness, got translated into uh, German. Awesome. Pretty cool. And I got like the Du, du hast meek. I don't even know what it's awesome. <laughs> So like, you know, now, you know, now my voice is in German, in Germany, in their language. And um, I think I want to say, I forget, there's two other places that are going to translate. I don't remember where they are. And, and, you know, I get random updates here and there. But really, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just getting my stuff out there. Because my, mm-hmm. my goal in my life is to eventually move to, to teaching full time. I mean, that yeah. I feel like is the best use of my time is to just be teaching. I mean, right now I deliver potato chips, which is nice. It pays the bills. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, it gives me benefits and, and steady income. So it's good for now. Um, but you know, those eight to 10 hours a day where I'm just driving and, um, delivering, I feel could be better used actually like helping reducing suffering in people's lives and and bringing them ease. And, um, you know, that's what I'm good at and really connecting with people. So, you know, for me, the book is like a step in that direction. Awesome. Well, there's a lot of people listening who may not have heard your first appearance on episode 75. So just a little bit of background story for you. Um, how many years into your practice would you say you are now like serious practice number of years? I want to say 13, you know, and I always base that off my first retreat, which was November. Oh God. Now the math <laughs> 2008, I think. Cool. I must've been, I know I was practicing before that, you know, I, I know I, I must've, because why would I have wanted to go on a retreat if I wasn't practicing meditation? And sure. I, but I like to just 
base it off of that. So I would say about about 13 years of uh, pretty intense practice. Awesome. So what were some of like the the specific lineages? Did you kind of dabble around before you sort of found your your home, sort of, so to speak? All right. Well, I'm still kind of finding my home. I'm kind of what um, this guy Koshin, um, he wrote the book Wholehearted. I don't know if you, you saw him or his book, but he, he's a wisdom author as well. He, he kind of called himself a lone wolf and then mm. he eventually found his tradition. But I kind of feel like I'm I'm still that lone wolf, you know. Um, I, I started in the Chan tradition, which is mm-hmm. the Chinese version of Zen. Then I, you know, went into a couple of different types of Zen traditions. Uh, and for me, it's always like, I, I, you know, I like bits and pieces of things. And then there are some things that just either don't resonate with me or, you know, and I know that's kind of like the American thing, right? The sure. thing, have it your way. Um, <laughs> And to go deep in a tradition. But, you know, I, I would say my tradition is like the four noble truths, you know, and, and some of the basic um, Buddhist teachings that are are throughout all of the, the, the Buddhist traditions, you know. Um, Excellent. So, yeah. So from Chan to Zen to kind of whatever it is I'm doing now, like just uh, this human Zen. Yeah. <laughs> So are are you like leading a, a sort of a sangha or are you sort of like uh, just have like a sitting group? I know you mentioned earlier that you've been doing some online stuff this past year, but like, are you sort of like in charge or do you all sort of just do it together to keep yourselves accountable in your practice? Um, I would say it's a mix of both right now. Again, we don't really have anything going on. Um, I'd love to get a sangha going again. Um, I had a nice group at the library right in our town and it was growing. It was like 15, 16 people every good week. Group. Yeah. New, new people were starting to come. And then, you know, this shutdown happened and, you know, a lot of these people were older and probably, you know, not familiar with zoom or so, you know, it's kind of, it's, kind of stinks um but i think once we reopen that is like top priority on my list is to get at least one steady group that i can continue to grow and you know i'm always open if if a couple of people want to do kind of what you're saying a little group to be held accountable i'd be happy to do a zoom thing or something like that it's just you know people are I don't know where people are right now. Yeah, yeah, we're all it's it's been weird and the local group here in Buffalo does like a really steady Tuesday nights sort of meeting and I've popped into there about four or five times now, but it's always like one of those things to where like, oftentimes I don't even really know what day it is. Like you and I have had trouble scheduling for the last few months because that's been on me. Like I'm like what day is this? It's like Wednesday. And my wife's like, no, it's Friday. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I feel like I've been so scattered that like, you know, those invites come out for the Zoom Sangha. And I'm just like, I don't even know what's happening today. And, you know, it's, it's, I get it is what I'm saying. Like, I totally understand like the scattershot nature of this entire year. It's been really hard, but let's talk about something more fun. Let's talk about your new book. Your life is meditation also from wisdom. Um, how long has this book been out now? Just came out uh, October 6th, I think it was. Fantastic. Well, you write fantastically about the unexpectedness of your day-to-day life and how it looks quite a lot different than someone who lives like a monastic existence. Earlier, you said that you're, you deliver, like you're a delivery driver. And so I'm curious about your daily routine 
for Zen practice while also being a parent of three and also having this really unorthodox schedule where you wake up at like two 30 in the morning every day. So tell me about like a start to finish of a normal day for, for you. Um, basically, yeah, I, luckily only Fridays I have to wake up at two 30 now. <laughs> um, but I wake up at four every day for work and, you know, right now, especially with the pandemic, I'm really trying to get some o- overtime. So I try to do like nine or 10 hours, uh, delivering, like I said, I deliver chips, uh, I drive a 30 foot truck. Um, and I, yeah, luckily my route is good, but you get, you get a lot of, uh, grumpy, miserable people <laughs> that you see in this business and trying to find ways to, uh, you know, remain at ease and try to hold them in compassion as hard as that is sometimes. Um, but yeah, you know, so, I, and let me rewind a little bit because the whole point of this book is really that your, your whole life is practice. And, and mm. this is a really important teaching for me because for probably <laughs> eight or nine years of these 13 years, I had such a, a big split between my, my actual life mm-hmm. and my like ideal practice life, you know? So I always, you know, and, and this was a real thing. I actually, you know, split myself up into Monk and Mark, you know, Mark was this crazy college kid who, you know, was wild and funny and making all kinds of inappropriate jokes and just like the center of attention, rock star, wannabe kind of thing. And then you had this other side of me that was the monk, which was like loved retreats, wanted to give give up lay life and become a monastic, you know, uh, trainee or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, the I had such a hard time with that split mm. because... You know, it'd be like, all right, my Buddhist practice says no intoxicants, so I'm going to give up drinking, you know, and then (laughs) then I'd go away for three weeks with like eight of my best friends to Cyprus and be wasted. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, and then I beat myself up, you know, like you said you were going to do this. You're not spiritual at all. You know, I mean, that was really early on. um, But like, you know, just getting angry and, you know, it was just like. I really split myself up into these two parts. And I think, you know, what these years of practice have taught me is that it's okay to, to have both. Why can't I be, you know, sometimes making funny jokes or something maybe a little inappropriate, but at the same time, absolutely love my, my Buddhist practice and, and be working to help reduce suffering in my life and, and be compassionate and then caring and, you know, at the same time. So how do I, how do I hold all of these parts of me? Mm. So early on, I thought, okay, I just need to go on more retreats so I can get rid of this part of me, you know, these parts that are inappropriate or these parts that are too crazy or not loving or angry or, and I, and, you know, I couldn't get on enough retreats and I feel like I couldn't meditate enough and I wasn't getting the results. And no matter what I did, I ended up being the same person, you know, I'm, I'm giving a, a talk today, actually, uh, new year, same you, and that's just fine. You know, nice. Cause we think like new year, new you, new year, better you. And it's all, you know, uh, but as much as you try, like, let's say your thing is anxiety. You try, you try, you try this, you try therapy, you try, it, it keeps coming back. Yeah. You know? And, and at some point it clicked for me. I think I was on a 10 day retreat and I was sitting there and I'm like, maybe this is it. Like, and, and those three words for me 
are so powerful. This is it. I know it sounds like so duh, but this like this is literally it. Us sitting here talking, there, whatever state of mind is present, whatever emotions are present, whatever sensations are arising and sounds and thoughts, like this is the content of our life. This is what we have to work with. This is our practice. Mm. It's not about when I go next year on a five-day retreat or something, which is not going to happen, but right. making that up. Um, it's not like once I meditate for another thousand hours, it, like where else can I be? Nowhere. This is it. And once you get that, not just intellectually, we all can understand, okay, my life is right here. There's nowhere. But once you really feel that like in your body, in your heart, and you know, that there is nothing else. There is no other life. There is, you know, no other family. There is no other personality that, that the things that have happened have happened, you know, and what you're dealing with now is what you're dealing with now. Um, it sounds dep depressing a little at first. And actually when I said this once in a yoga class, I was like, all right, guys, like, this is it. I heard one person go, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> but you know, once you get past that like disappointment um you can finally have real ease and, and actual happiness and, and and joy and appreciation uh for the for the the ordinary painful confusing difficult life that you have right now mm, it's like you were reconciling the fact that you were living in parallel worlds Almost like you had these like two competing lives going on and one side was looking at the other side of your life going, oh, you're not good enough. And the other side was looking at the other side of you going, oh, you're not fun enough. And so then what you've managed to do is sort of merge those two parallel worlds into one world, which is, you know, that that's a really uh, big accomplishment, I would say. Right. And then kind of holding both with compassion and knowing that on one level, they're all me. And then on another level, none of it's me, you know, and kind of, you know, just playing with it, you know, like and uh, playing the game, so to speak, and, and doing it with complete seriousness. Like I take my practice very seriously, but at the same time, extremely lighthearted, you know, yeah. and with, with a sense of humor and, um, you know, it's taken me a long time to find that balance. And, and, you know, occasionally here and there, I still like feel a little uneasy about it. But um, for the most part, I have um, what Tara Brock, I, I don't know if she came up with this, but I heard her say it one time, and I love it, a, a profound okayness, mm. you know, with with myself with my life. And it's not perfect. I promise you that I don't, you know, like my one tattoo artist, like I, I thought you just blissfully float around your house every day. I'm like, yeah, let me let me bring my wife in here and let her tell you how I blissfully float around or my kids will bring them in, you know, tell them how much of a Buddha I am. <laughs> so how does the so this new book, like one of the things I love about it is that it describes the everyday reality of most people's lives. Right. You know, it's 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 uh, it is totally relatable the challenges that you describe in the beginning of the book to just about anybody's busy day-to-day -day life. So was the impetus for this new book, Your Life is Meditation, to um, you know, expand on a fool's guide for actual happiness with like some everyday like scenario type of things? Well, actually, it, it originally just started out as me wanting to do this second book. And I was like, how can I do this you know, writing a book can be a pain in the butt sometimes. So I was like, how can I like simplify this and make it fun? And so basically what I did was I recorded 
my Dharma talks at the beginning of my yoga classes. Okay. Or for some of my meditation classes. And then it's like, well, let me just compile all of these like stories with the practical wisdom and the practices and, and, and concepts and teachings that are like, that people can actually relate to, you know, and sometimes that's such a problem with like Buddhist stuff. Sometimes like you talk about emptiness or you talk about these things and, and they seem so foreign and it's like, yeah, that's cool. And I get it. But what about like Tuesday afternoon when I'm stuck in traffic, I need to get home and uh, I'm very pissed off and <laughs> you know, people are honking at me and, um, I've already felt anxious that whole day and, you know, how does that help? You know, and that's, that's always been my thing, you know, like church on Sunday growing up, that was nice. I dressed nice. I acted appropriate for an hour. I didn't really understand what was going on with the songs and the, the readings and all this. And then I just go back to my life with no tools, with yeah. no help, you know, like, you know, praying didn't do anything like, okay, let me pray for my problems to go away up. Oh, I wake up and they're still there. Yeah. Right? So it's like, there was not that, and not that like in, I grew up Catholic, not that there wasn't that, that inner nourishment in the tradition, but it, it's not the main point, you know, it's more external. Um, at least when I was growing up, maybe it's changed, uh, uh, you know, but there are inner tools in that tradition like some meditations and, you know, just like rosary beads, for example, I never did that. I never knew, you know, and, and, and it always had this like mysterious thing quality. Like, I don't know, like it just wasn't relatable for me, you know? And then, then when I went to school for religion and I studied all these traditions and Buddhism was just like, Oh <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like, I don't have to believe in anything weird. I don't need to worship anybody. Um, and he's just pointing out some basic truths of life and saying, you know, you can line yourself up with what's true and see things a little more clearly and you'll have a lot more ease and you can be of more use and your life can be more meaningful. Um, so I don't know how I got on that, but yeah, no, it's yeah. fine. So tell me, what you did, so you had this collection of Dharma talk recordings, and surely they were about like something that may have happened to you like that day or the previous week, and then you tied that into like a practical lesson that you could then give to the people in your yoga classes. How did you start um, going through these talks? Did you start like transcribing them and seeing like what was within these teachings that you were offering in class? Like, how did that process look of transferring it from like recording into the vignettes and the stories that we find in the book? Well, actually, I, I really didn't want to transcribe. And I was like, you know, again, I was really looking for the simplest, easiest way to get another book out. Um, I know that sounds horrible, but whatever. When you have a crazy schedule, you got to do what you got to do. To oh, get yeah. It. Um, so I actually hired my cousin <laughs> to transcribe. It. Give a shout out to Chrissy here. Nice. Thank you. Uh, so she would, you know, I'd pay her to just listen to them and write them, write them out. And they were, they were, they were good. I mean, so, some of my wording is off and she, I mean, she typed it verbatim. So I had to make some minor adjustments do some expansions. And, and what's great about the wisdom edition is a uh, well of both books, right? Cause be your shitty self became a fool's guide to actual happiness. Yeah. Luckily they stepped st uh, stuck with the name. Your life is meditation for this one. They actually wanted to change it to uh, what uh, a fool's guide to mindfulness, but oh. uh, it got, it got shut down for some reason. So they kept it, which I was really happy about with the, uh, the wisdom editions. 
I got to go back like years later, because remember, I mean, Be Your Shitty Self was published or when 2015, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, and then your life is meditation and a year or two after that. So maybe 2017, something like that. So, you know, I've had years of practice on top of that and, and just living life. And, and so I got to go back and, you know, I, I'd like to think my practice is a little more mature, at least. So I got to go back and I got to really relook at these stories and with my, my newer understanding and kind of, you know, tweak it a little bit and make the wording a little better. And, you know, what's more practical and what, what's really more impactful. So the, this newer version of your life is meditation, I think is just so much more powerful than the original. Nice. You start the book by describing the everyday reality of most people, like I said earlier, like scattered thoughts, feelings of aloneness, disconnection from things, maybe like nature or something that we all believe to be important, yet we still remain disconnected from. Tell me about the state of your life um, that, uh, that you go through every day. Like, um, tell me a little bit more about that, that day-to-day existence where you're like in these situations that are struggling that everybody experiences and like what you do in the moment. Right. Right. Well, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I mean, um, I don't have any special (laughs) powers or anything. So, you know, like, like everyone else, I wake up, most mornings I feel pretty good, but sometimes I just don't want to go to work. I'm not in the mood for it that day, uh, but I do it anyway, of course. Uh, and, you know, just dealing with the everyday moods and thoughts, you know, like, especially me, I'm driving for a long time. I drive a lot. So I have, it's just me and my, my mind, you know, me and yeah. myself. So, so what do I do for my practice? A bunch of different things. Um, you know, there was a time where I was trying to do the hundred thousand, um, recitations of Om Mani Padme Hum. Mm. So that was, uh, I did that from, mm, I don't know, like springtime through the summer. So while I was driving, I had a system with my fingers so I could keep track. And I literally, it took months, but I, I did a hundred thousand recitations of Om Mani Padme Hum. I, I, I read that in a book and I was like, that seems like a really cool, but difficult thing. So, you know, and, and now, you know, I'm in an ongo period, which is like the Zen Lent. It's like Buddhist Lent mm-hmm. uh, way to, to deepen your practice. So, you know, I'm, I'm chanting the heart sutra in the morning three times while I'm driving, because, you know, I, I just, I hate to sound cliche, but I really just don't have the time, right. To just sit somewhere and chant the heart sutra. So while I'm driving to work. I chant the heart sutra when, you know, and then, when I'm finished with that, I'll just repeat the, the mantra at the end, which is gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisoha. So I'm just reciting, repeating, and just keeping my mind in, in one spot. Um, and that, that's not always, you know, sometimes I, I put on podcasts or Dharma talks. Um, sometimes I practice singing, you know, I've been, yeah. been doing uh, these videos on YouTube to just make my singing better. So I'm just, I, I use the time in my truck, I think wisely to, you know, either cultivate some skills in my life or to, to keep my mind present and to even just to observe my mind, you know, as I'm, as I'm going out through my day. And, and really the, the one thing that is helpful again, is this is it. It's been very helpful for me. So if I'm stuck in traffic and I need to get to this store that's closing, like, well, this is it. I mean, 
there's nothing else I can do, right? Yeah. Except I, well, I can either get more frustrated and, and strengthen anger and strengthen aversion, or I can just pause and, and come back to the felt sense, know that this is going to pass. I mean, that's the second part, right? This is it, but this too shall pass. And again, when you know that experientially, it's so powerful because it doesn't matter what mood you're in. It doesn't matter how bad your anxiety is or, you know, how bad a, a craving is or, or whatever it is in that moment that it, it has to go away, mm. right? Everything is self-liberating. Thoughts are self-liberating. Emotions are self-liberating. But we don't trust that. We don't trust ourselves that we're, we're strong enough to, to hold these things and give them the space until they pass. We get so scared. We want that quick relief. So we do these unwholesome or unskillful things when you could just let it air out. You know, like if I'm in an argument with my wife, it's like my mind has a certain way of reacting, which I'm very clear about now. You know, for me, like in any situation, whether it's work, uh, project, something with friends or, you know, family, if it gets hard, I'm out, mm. right? That, that's my, that's my personality. That's how I always did things. If it gets too hard, I run away, mm. right? So I understand that my mind functions in this way. So when I'm triggered, if I'm aware, <laughs> which is the big, the big word, right? If I'm paying attention, then I have that possibility to let it just extinguish itself. Just listen to it without identifying with it, without giving it your mouth without giving it your hands or your body, right? Not don't give that mood. Let don't let it take over, but that doesn't mean suppressing it. You know, it, it's, it's feeling it fully experience, like experientially, like going into that direct experience of it without getting swept away. That really resonated with me because you and I have that in common, that whole <clears throat> something gets hard and you sort of like are looking for the exit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I've been guilty of that myself. Um, another concept in the book that I really liked when I read it the other day was uh, your your term small mindedness. And I'm wondering if you can say what that means in the context of your life and within this book. All right. Um, so small mindedness is basically like you might have heard the word ego or self, you know, like it's just referring to this like little cocoon that we create with our ideas, our perceptions, our uh, likes and dislikes, you know, our our habitual kind of conditioned reactivity from our lives. Like we limit ourselves to to basically our thoughts and feelings about things. And, you know, lately, uh, because, you know, I'm not going to give you the title yet of my new book, mm -hmm. but um, I, I've been changing small mindedness to me world. Oh, cool. You know? And, and that's, you know, the me, 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 you know, how does this relate to me? Do I like it? Do I not like it? If I like it, I'm going to try to get more. If I don't like it, I'm trying to, I'm going to try to escape it at all costs. And it's a very small minded way of living. And, you know, when you're living that way, you're just a slave to whatever you feel and whatever you think. Um, and I'm not saying we should disregard feelings and thoughts. That's not what I'm saying at all, but we should use them wisely and use the ones that are in line with our deepest values rather than the ones that just pull us away out of fear or greed or hatred or or whatnot, you know? Mm. So say someone wishes to set a goal as big mindedness and they want to flip small mindedness into big mindedness. What would that look like uh, in your like vision? 
Well, you know, you got to be careful with, with goal setting and practice. It's a tricky thing to talk about. I like the idea of just like intention. Oh, gotcha. You know, setting an intention without an attachment to a result, right? And, and just kind of planting that possibility. You know, and the thing is, we don't have to get big mindedness. We already are big mindedness. Like it's, it's, it's already there. It's not like we have to cultivate it. What we have to cultivate is letting go of small mindedness. Mm-hmm. You know? So on one level, you're already it. But on the other level, you have to practice remembering that you're it over and over again. <laughs> nice. Um, you know, something that I also really loved in the book is how you talk about working with each moment of your life in a kind, deep and intimate way, even if it's negative. You already said that a few minutes ago. And, you know, I'm still exploring the book and I'm liking it a lot because, you know, I, I tend to uh, poke through the different books that I talk about with folks such as yourself on the show in in various ways that uh, are personally enjoyable to me. And, you know, I'm wondering in your view, what are some of your favorite stories that you included in the book? Do you have any like personally like favorite like chapters or anything that you really liked? Because there's such a wide variety of stories that you include. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, the title, I think, is something along the lines of how I ended up in the backseat of a police car on a silent retreat. Yeah, and I think that's <laughs> one of my favorites because this really gets to the point of this whole book. Right. Because I was really I was really trying to get the big E right. Enlightenment. I was I, I thought if I just had this experience of oneness, all my problems would be solved. And, you know, what I was really doing was running away from life, the, the painful parts of it, the difficult and confusing parts of it, the uncertainty, the not knowing, you know, basically running from the whole thing, trying to have some neat package, you know, of completion or something, you know, get the sticker and the high five and the trophy. You did it. You're enlightened. You're compassionate all the time. You're never angry anymore. And it's a load of shit. I mean, and if you're out there now chasing it, I mean, on the one hand, it's good because you have, when you're chasing those things, you have a really strong determination. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to dismiss it and say it was a waste of time because let me tell you, I really practiced hard when, when I was trying to get that. But at the same time, you know, it was, it was very unrealistic. And um, part of my job as a teacher is to kind of take, take people off of those like unrealistic expectations, like get them out of there. And when one quote really um, sums it up, and I don't know who it was by, but I remember reading it and I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And it said something along the lines like a mature meditation practice or spiritual practice is when you're able to sit with the very things you came to practice to get rid of. You know, at that time, why I got into that, like, you know, whole sidetrack was because I was really thinking to myself, all these retreats I'm going on with teachers, they're not hard enough. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not meditating long enough. You know, uh, they're, they're doing walking meditation and this, I should be sitting for hours. I need to go into deep Samadhi and attain all these, whatever I thought. So I decided to book my own retreat and I was going to make it really hard. I was like, they, you know, these teachers don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I know I'm going to enlighten myself. So I was taking it very seriously and thinking that, you know, I had to do this stuff to get something to be better. Um, So I, you know, booked this whole retreat and I told the people at the retreat center, I don't want anyone talking to me. So they gave me this sign that I wrap around my neck. Uh, It's like a string with cardboard that says silent. 
<laughs> so people would know not to talk to me. And, um, you know, I started the first day strong. I did long sittings. My legs were killing me, but I sat through it. And um, I don't know what, it was a little later at night after dinner, I decided to just do a little walk to give my legs a break. And there was a path that they had showed me earlier. And, uh, you know, I was on the path for a while and it was starting to get dark. And um, <clears throat> I was trying to find my way back. And I realized I must have been off the path for quite some time. Um, so I was deep in the woods and it was going to get cold. And I, so I, I had my black pants, a black hoodie, um, black gloves and the sign around my neck that said silent. So I didn't know what to do. I couldn't even see the lights for the, the center. So I just kept wandering around and I saw a few houses. So, you know, I went to go to one and there was a big scary dog, which luckily didn't attack me. And I rang the doorbell and this woman answers like, doesn't even want to open the door. I mean, you could imagine the scenario. Someone, of course. You know, you live in the woods and someone rings the bell. They have a black hoodie on, black gloves, black pants, and a sign around their neck that says silent. Um, <laughs> I would be quite terrified. But I asked her, like, do you know where this center is? I mean, I, I'm, I'm on retreat at this Buddhist center. And she, of course, had no idea. She said, maybe my neighbor knows and kind of slammed the door shut. And I went across the street and there was another scary dog, but luckily that one was inside. So I didn't even bother going near the door and it didn't look like anyone was home. So I went back and this time the daughter answered, she must've been like 15. And I'm like, listen, I, I'm like really lost here. Like, I don't know if you could, you know, I'll stay outside. I'm not some weirdo, but you know, give me your phone or something. So I called the center and I didn't know the number. So they Googled it. I called, but at that time it was seven o'clock um, they were in puja, so they were all doing there. It was like a Tibetan version oh, of Buddhist, so they're um, Buddhism. So they were all in prayer, and I was like, "Oh my god!" So I didn't know what else to do. So they decided to just call the police and have them come pick me up. So you know, the two police officers come, and they, you know, yeah, police officers can be like all like license you know not registration but <laughs> license please and i didn't have it i was trying to explain to them i was like i'm at this retreat center i don't know where it is i got lost i was on a path so they put me in the back seat and they <laughs> they drove me back luckily they were still all in puja because i would have been horrified to if they saw me like getting out of a police car and then you know i got my my license i showed them they they realized that i'm not some nut and uh they went on their way but you oh know, my god i ended up leaving that retreat like a day later because i i was so disappointed that i had talked I, out of all of that i was disappointed that i talked i said well i ruined my chance for nirvana and enlightenment so i'm just gonna go home oh my gosh that is hilarious i love it <laughs> um you know, and that's really interesting too about like striving and being like totally attached to an end goal. So earlier you've talked about like not worrying about the end goals per se, just having the experience. But that seems like a time when you were so into having a specific goal that when that when that one thing didn't occur, it sort of like sent you into like, you know, off the deep end. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. But you know what? It woke me up. It didn't just send me off the deep end. It kind of said, look, dude, you're taking yourself way too seriously. Like, you know, just relax. I mean, I didn't, I might not have gotten the message at that time, like completely, 
but it, you know, it hit me later on, you know, it's like, all right, like, and, and, and that's the thing. And I, I don't want to downplay striving and effort. Like you're, it's important to be dedicated and to yeah. have, you need discipline for this practice to transform your heart, you know, and, 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 and there are fruits of the practice, but I also don't like focusing on that because then people get stuck in some future idea and they miss the whole point to begin with, which is this, right? This is yeah. it. There is not another time. There's just this time where you're still confused and angry and, and, you know, whatever, um, which I think is going to lead perfectly into your questions about. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about um, some practical things. So, you know, everyday situations that everyday people will find themselves in that are annoying that often cause stress and anxiety and possibly anger. Um, so I want to run a couple scenarios past you just for the fun of it. Um, so like, say you're standing in line at like a uh, target or a grocery store and things aren't going well. So say that the person is very angry. Everybody knows this feeling. So what is like a way that they can talk themselves sort of down or into a calmer state if they find themselves getting wound up being stuck in like a very long line in a store checkout or something like that. Right. You know, there's this new thing that I've been um, teaching and that's my third book is really focusing on and it's by Stephen Batchelor. I don't know. Yeah. Have, have you ever had him on? I haven't. No, but he's great. I love his books. Yeah, me too. So his thing is Elsa. So I'm sure you're familiar with Elsa if you've read his book, mm -hmm. but it's basically like a very practical explanation of the Four Noble Truths, right? So in any situation, you can really apply this. So I'll, I'll quickly run through them and then I'll break each one down. So first, the E is embrace, right? The first noble truth, life is dukkha, life is difficult, life has, and the word dukkha itself, I'm not even going to get into that because there's just so many levels to it. Um, but basically the E is embrace, embrace life as it is. You know, and that's really what sitting meditation and mindfulness is all about is opening to your life. That doesn't mean being passive, but it means coming from a place, you know, of acceptance. Like, you know, when I talk about hopelessness in the book, I look at it as a positive thing. Um, and that's a fun chapter for, for people to read. But basically how I define it is how I'm going to define this too, is a lively engagement from a place of acceptance. Right. So it's not saying that, like, if you're being abused, that you, you should just say, OK, I accept that this person abuses me every day. That's not it. But you can accept that. Here's the situation. This person is stuck in their patterns of abuse and, and anger and, and and they're continuing their suffering. And, and you're, you know, receiving that. And that's so this is the situation. And all that all that means is, OK, this is my this is my life right now. Right. So then, but then it's a lively engagement, not, not from reactivity, but from response, responsiveness, right. A skillful means, uh, a wholesome ways of um, responding to the situation. And that brings us to the L letting go. What are we letting go of conditioned reactivity? Right. So when you see that annoying person at the in line or someone's taking too long, you have a conditioned reaction to that, which is probably annoyance. Right. And it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to look at that and say, all right, this is an unskillful reaction. If I if I let this reaction take over my mouth, I'm going to make things a lot worse. If I have, you know, by saying that stupid comment, you know, that, you know, that little jab at that person or, you know, huffing and puffing or 
whatever it might be, it's not skillful. And if you continue indulging in it, guess what? It's going to be that much easier to get mad next time. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's how we have to view it. Like that karmic kind of, it's not some hokey pokey concept karma. It's like, Hey, if you, if you, if every time someone makes you mad, you scream and you keep doing that, then that, you know, neural pathway gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And it, it, it may seem like that's the only response that you can have, which isn't true, but, you know, think of like your neurons, like, you know, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so this may be completely inaccurate, but it makes sense this way to me. Um, think of like water, like water follows just the path of least resistance, you know? So if you did build and dig this deep trench, the water's going to go that way until mm-hmm. you start building a new trench, you know, and, and filling in that one. Uh, so, you know, so to be able to, to see your reactivity and then learn to let it go. And that like, a, you know, the next part is um, like seeing, seeing that, that it ends. That, you know, yes, the, the current situation, the current conditions are, there's an arising of reactivity, but those conditions will change. And so will that reactivity. And if you don't feed it, it will fall away. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think that that would apply very clearly as well to like, being in traffic, you know what I mean? People who struggle with intense road rage and things like that, I feel have a lot to to learn from that. And, you know, as you, as somebody who spends a lot of your life behind the wheel in like the Eastern seaboard of the United States, where there's intense traffic frequently, um, I'd imagine that you're doing those types of things for yourself quite often, I would think, right? Uh, yeah, you, I mean, you can imagine that. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, I do my best with it, you know. And and the A, by the way, is is act and and acting skillfully. So trying to not act limited to that small mindedness, or you know, being limited by the small mindedness, but acting from the big mind, acting from wisdom and compassion. So and and you know, and even if and and this is funny, and I I tell this all the time, people laugh, but it's true, uh, you know, like given the the car situation, sometimes people caught, um, sometimes people cut me off. And my first initial rea- reaction is like, you asshole. Yeah. Right? So that comes out. But then I recognize that. And I, and I quickly say like, may you be well. Ah, nice. <laughs> like, so even if you can't stop that first in action, that first like inappropriate response or reaction, you can follow it up with, uh, at least the possibility of compassion, you know, and, and that's like, you're not trying to make yourself like if someone cuts you off, like, yeah, it's kind of douchey. I mean, what do you, yeah. <laughs> it is what it is, but we, we want to start training our mind or setting that intention. Remember we talked about that intending the mind to go in the direction of compassion. So even if you slip up and you say, you asshole, and you stick your finger up and you say, oops, and then you say, all right, you know, Maybe he's rushing to see his mother in the hospital or you don't even have to come up with an explanation. May you get to where you're going safely and may you find peace in your heart. Because if there was peace in that person's heart, they wouldn't be rushing around. They wouldn't be projecting themselves forward into some other place. You know, there's there's some unease there. There's some anxiety or some fear or something. So, you know, you know, wishing them well is is on one level for them, but it probably doesn't really affect them much, but for you, for what do you want to cultivate in your life? What are your deepest values and, and how can you incline your mind to go in that direction? And, you know, with the mind, it's like what you do over and over again becomes 
that second nature becomes who you are. Like if you're a musician, right? Doing your scales at first, you feel like, eh, I can't do it, you know, like, eh. <laughs> but you do it and you do it and you screw up and you do it again and you do it. And, you know, 10 years later, you could do it with your eyes closed, like hanging upside down, like when you don't even need to hear the notes, you could just, you know, it's just, it becomes who you are, it becomes a part of you, you know? So it's like this continued effort to incline the mind to go in a skillful and wholesome direction. Nice. Well, and earlier you mentioned that you've got three kids at home. And I know that your youngest is very young, but, um, you know, kids all over the country right now in this past year have been in school, out of school, hybrid school, full-time in school, full-time virtual school. Parents are like stuck trying to figure out how they're going to get these kids onto these like virtual learning platforms at certain times of the day and get so many exercises turned in. Our lives are in upheaval, chaos um, at home and parents are at wit's end. Um, any thoughts on parenting as we you know, navigate through the next six to eight months before while we're waiting for uh, vaccines and life to return to a little bit of normalcy? I think the first, um, I mean, I'm still working this one out, but I think the first uh, teaching is some self-compassion. Because right now we're in times that are very, very different. I mean, we've never gone through something like this, you know, so there's financial issues, there's being around significant others or friends or family um, a lot more than we're used to. We're not just able to get out. We're not able to run away, you know. Um, so, you know, if you find you're a little more agitated, you're a little less patient, like, of course, right? Of course. So have a little compassion. I'm not saying like, beat your kids and be okay with it. <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but you know, if you, if you, if you're, if you do end up yelling, like don't kill yourself over it, don't beat yourself up over it. You know, obviously make, set that intention to go into each day to be as awake as possible and to, to really breathe through the frustration. I mean, if kids teach you anything, like you're not, you're not in control. <laughs> like, you know, like that, that's what they're great at showing you like over and over again, like that, you know, that it's just, I don't know. It's just very difficult. Um, especially with, with young kids, you know, they need a lot of attention and, um, it can be very tiring. And if, you know, I don't know if the people out there have kids like mine that don't sleep through the night still, I haven't had a good night's sleep in five years. So I'm on very little sleep. I'm working many long hours. Um, and then to come home and try to give, you know, full attention and energy is very difficult. So for the working parents out there that are still working hard, trying to make ends meet again, you know, hold yourself in compassion because you're, you're probably doing a great job, even though you might not feel that way coming home. And if you're grouchy or not spending as much time with the kids, um, that you'd want or, or what have you, but really hold yourself in compassion and say, you know what, with these circumstances, I am doing the very best. And again, that's not a hall pass to, to give up. Um, but it's just, let that be step one. And then from step one say, okay, things are hard, but I, but I still can give a little more. I still can, you know, breathe when I'm feeling frustrated and, and respond a little more appropriately and, things like that. And, you know, I don't know about you, but if I scream or yell, uh, trying to get the kids to listen, it, 
doesn't really work that good. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Because <laughs> then they yell back and then you're like, okay, well, I'm going to yell louder. And then it becomes this match. Whereas like, you know, using like, sometimes like with my one daughter, it's just like distracting her. You know, it's like if she's getting all upset about a toy or something, oh, did grandma come over today? Like, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes, oh yeah, and she played this and oh, like they forget about it, you know, or just, you know, sometimes just taking them away from the situation and just having a talk, like, what, like, so you're, I see you're upset. Like, what do you want? Okay. You want this. Okay. Well, you can't have it right now. Why don't we set a timer for five o'clock and, um, you know, you can play it at five o'clock. Let's go do it together. And, you know, and, and, but whatever. Sometimes you do have to be the disciplinary and say like, no, like, sorry, go to your room or something, whatever, you know, I don't know uh, what people's parenting skills are, you know, or what, what's a, the right thing these days, you know, you, but um, I don't think there is a right thing. I think each child responds differently to things and to be awake enough to see what they need in that moment and what you need and, and, and how you need to respond. Um, and again, that Elsa thing applies, like embrace the moment. Okay. This is it. This is the situation. I'm triggered. They're not listening. Right. And what's my normal reaction. I want to yell. I want to, or I want to just run away, you know, like, okay. So that's reactivity. That's not very wholesome or skillful. Let's, you know, let's try to respond from a different place. Like clearly they're upset that they're not getting what they want. I'm exhausted and tired. And uh, you know, I, I don't have the patience for this right now. So what can I do? Right. And, and I don't have that answer. Right. It's it's unique to each situation, to each moment. And, you know, our deepest wisdom has that response if we're willing to open up to that possibility. Awesome. Well, Mark, I'm I'm super pumped that we got this uh, this chance to hang out and chat about both of your books and talk about many practical day to day experiences that um that I think that almost anybody listening can relate to. I'm really enjoying Your Life is Meditation, brand new from Wisdom. I have always enjoyed A Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness, also from Wisdom. It's fantastic that you are able to remain so prolific in your writing, even amidst the uh, very, very busy life that you lead. It's it's really inspiring that you uh, are committed to you know creativity and to practice and to being a part of your community, uh, even though things are, are so hard. Um, I'm just curious if you can tell the audience who's listening where to find you if they want to know more about your work or uh, you know find the books, et cetera. Like, where can they find you if they want to get in touch? Sure. And I'd love for people to get in touch with me. I mean, that brings me such great joy when I hear from people and, you know, we connect and tell stories and talk about practice. So please, if you feel, you know, inspired to reach out, do so. And basically, if you just type in author Mark Van Buren, you can basically find everything from that. That's my email, author Mark Van Buren at gmail.com. Uh, that's my Instagram, author Mark Van Buren. That's my Facebook. That's my YouTube. It's my website, authormarkvanburen.com. So um, just any of the, plug that in into any of, of wherever you want to find me and uh, I'll be there. Fantastic. Well, Mark, it's been a real pleasure catching up and hearing about your work. And I'm really grateful to you for coming back on Classical Ideas. And it's uh, it's awesome to have you. Thank you so much. And maybe I'll be back for a third book one day in the future. <laughs>